Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. My name is Viv, but some of you know me as Sober I Thrive on the I Am Sober app, which is where I met today's guest sharing her inspiring sober recovery story. She goes by Hummingbird's Appetite on the I Am Sober app, which we warmly call IAS. You can find it on your app store with whatever device you are currently using. You can download it for free. It will help you count your alcohol-free days. You can make an account easily and anonymously and meet people from all over the world that have the same mindset as you to create a life free from alcohol that is so full that you will never ever want to mute ever again. But before we get started, I would like to invite you to visit SoberTownPodcast.com where you will find all of the podcast episodes, tons of recovery-related resources. You'll find tools like Todd's blog, sobriety tools, like great ideas for handling cravings, and other topics like Rewired and Zooms. Take a look around. It's all free and inspired with love to support the sober warrior in you. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hey, Viv. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on today. My pleasure. My pleasure to have your sober recovery story, one of Hero's Journey, to inspire every listener out there that is wanting to recover and be the sober warrior. So thank you. Thank you for being here. It's an honor. It really is. I'm, I'm a huge sober town fan, as you know. <laughs> Let us get started. Take us back. Um, okay, so I'm Mary. As you said, I go by Hummingbird's Appetite on IAS. I am 35 years old, and I was born way long ago <laughs> in Virginia. I'm the youngest of three girls, so I have uh, two older sisters. My parents divorced when I was about six or seven years old. My dad was an alcoholic, which had a huge part in their divorce, but it wasn't something that our family ever really talked about. It was kind of a secret and it definitely wasn't something I was aware of until a little bit later in life. I was kind of a daddy's girl. I was really close to my dad. I thought he was so fun and hilarious and I really enjoyed being around him, but he definitely had another side to him where he could be very mean and he was abusive at times to my older sisters and there was some resentment um I think from the fact from my older sisters at the fact that I was kind of babied you know as the baby of the family and you know maybe more or less being the favorite in some ways that I was treated better than they were and stuff like that that started causing some anxiety around about six or seven years old, whenever my parents got divorced, I actually started having panic attacks. And it got so bad that I was sent home from school sick, because uh, I would, you know, just worry and cry myself sick at school. And I would be sent home because of it. And at this point, my mom's, you know, basically a single mom, she's working, and she, she had a lot on her plate. And she was not very compassionate about it whenever I would get sent home from school sick due to panic attacks and she would get frustrated with me she would get angry at me I remember getting yelled at 
when I just had, you know, all this anxiety that I didn't even know how to deal with. And I definitely didn't understand, you know, why I was getting in trouble for that. But my mom was a nurse and she worked full time. And basically her, um, her policy with my sisters and I was don't call me unless you're bleeding out your eyes. And even then you have to put pressure on it, wait 10 minutes. And if you're still bleeding, then we were allowed to call her. So. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was lighthearted, but it was also, you know, she, she was serious. She, she meant business. She, she didn't really have a lot of bandwidth to kind of deal with stuff like that. We moved from Virginia to California when I was about nine years old. And moving to California, I felt like an outsider at school immediately. I had a lot of trouble making friends and I was bullied a little bit. And I also, I went through puberty incredibly early. I was about nine or 10 years old and I got my first period and I didn't even know what that was or what was happening to my body. Um, I got these huge C cup boobs and sweating all the time and, you know, acne and I just, I did not understand what was happening or anything. And it definitely caused the divide between myself and my classmates. It was just another thing that made it that I didn't fit in. And I was just, I was just always really different from everyone. And I remember I started comforting myself with food at a really young age. And I think between uh, the food and puberty and all that kind of stuff, I started gaining a lot of weight when I was young. Uh, the other thing that started happening around the same time that I hit puberty is I started noticing these kind of strange mental compulsions that I really didn't I didn't have words for I had no language in my vocabulary to, to communicate with anyone in my life about what was going on but basically I was I was disassociating from reality a lot I had a lot of mental rumination I had these fixations on counting patterns and symmetry. So, for example, everything kind of had to be done in threes. So if something brushed against my left hand once, I had to have the same sensation of something brushing against my hand three times. And then it had to be repeated on the right hand three times as well. And if that cycle didn't complete, it caused a lot of mental anguish and stress. And I was really just like stuck in my own head. I just was kind of always going through these repetitive compulsions in my head and I didn't know how to talk about it. But what I did know, what I did learn from having panic attacks when I was younger was that if I did bring it up to my mom, that it was going to be a source of stress, a source of frustration, and that I was not going to be heard. So I really didn't talk about it. It was kind of like my dirty little secret. And I didn't know what obsessive compulsive disorder was at the time. It wasn't something I'd ever heard of or anything like that. So it wasn't until many years later when I was a teenager and I heard about OCD and I read up on it a little bit that I actually, it clicked in my head and I actually had a name for the feelings that I had been having for years. Yeah, it was a long time until I really had a way I guess the vocabulary to discuss the issue, but also it was still a source of shame and a source of confusion. And it was, it was kind of my little secret for a long time. I, a lot of the symptoms from OCD have fallen away as I've gotten older, thankfully, but I still 
I still experience intense stress if things aren't kind of placed or done in a certain way. Um, I still experience some of the invasive thoughts and mental rumination to this day. It's definitely not as debilitating as it was whenever I was about, you know, nine or 10 years old. But back when I first started experiencing the symptoms, I really was trying to figure out a way to cope because I was so stuck in my own head and I didn't, I didn't know how to deal. And I actually, I started cutting myself when I was about 10 years old. And it was another thing I just didn't understand, another source of internal confusion. I didn't know why I had the urge to hurt myself. I had so much pain and anguish inside of myself that I didn't know how to deal with, but I didn't want to kill myself. And that was confusing because I wasn't suicidal, but I was taking razor blades to my skin and bleeding. And it was, it was just very confusing. It was definitely another huge source of shame. It was another dirty little secret that I, I didn't know how to talk about. And I kept hidden from everybody. Very few people knew that I was, I was going through this or I was experiencing this. And I remember vividly, uh, I was, I was trying to kind of find a way out of this. I was trying to find a way out of the mental anguish. I was trying to find a way out of the self-harm. And I was, <laughs> I was playing with my stuffed animals in my room one day and I got them all lined up and I put my little chalkboard in front of them and I was playing school where I was the teacher and all the stuffed animals were my students. Um, and I decided I would bring in my mom as a nurse to come talk to my little stuffed animal class and tell them about, you know, her knowledge of medical stuff, basically. Um, she was going to be a guest speaker in the class that day. And I had seen, uh, something on TV, I think in a movie, um, that where a character had gotten amnesia and they, basically had their entire memory wiped clean and uh yeah had forgotten everything that ever happened to them in their lives and that was interesting to me because in my mind that if if I had amnesia it would erase my brain basically it would set restart me set me start me over from scratch and I asked my mom to tell my stuffed animal class about amnesia like what is amnesia and how does one get amnesia she you know didn't know where I was coming from or where I was going with that so you know being kind of the, the hardcore woman that she was she starts telling all my little stuffed animals about head trauma and car crashes and all this stuff like that and she ended uh her her little speech by telling the class that drinking alcohol can cause short-term amnesia, basically in the form of blacking out. But uh, I was intrigued. I mean, I was I was only 10 years old. I didn't have a way to get my hands on alcohol at that point, but it definitely planted a seed in my mind uh, that would, you know, continue to grow for many years later. So I was about 12 years old whenever I finally had my first drink, or when I actually uh, rather got drunk for the first time. A friend and I raided her parents' liquor cabinet. I remember we both got super sick, but we loved it. Um, I especially loved the feeling of kind of turning off my brain and turning off those thoughts. And from then on, anytime I could get my hands on alcohol, I would drink.
when I was about 13 or 14 years old, my dad moved to New Mexico and got remarried. Uh, he invited me to go to the wedding, but the, the whole situation was just super weird to me. He met the woman online. I had never met her before. This was like back in the days where if you wanted to meet a person online, you had to go to like an AOL chat room and it, I just, I didn't get it at all. You know, this was long before online dating was normal, social, acceptable kind of stuff. <laughs> I refused to go to the wedding and, and he was, he was really, he was mean about it and he completely cut me off. I think I, I probably had the choice to try to make an effort to continue the relationship, but I had seen the way that he had been treating my sisters and, um, I definitely reciprocated and chose not to continue to have a relationship with him as well. And now much later in life, I, I realized, you know, he was, he was the adult. He was the one that should have been, should have been the bigger person, you know, letting go of the resentments and stuff like that and still making an effort to continue to have a relationship. To me at the time of, you know, 13 years old, it definitely felt like, like an agreed upon thing. Like it was just as much my fault that we weren't speaking as it was his and we continued to not have a relationship anymore after that point he actually died when I was about 21 and we never really spoke again uh between you know when I was 13 and we stopped talking and then whenever I was 21 and he died and so at this point I'm you know I'm going into high school and I'm I'm coping a lot with you know still a lot of anxiety and stuff like that. My coping mechanisms were food. I'm still, you know, eating my feelings at this point. Alcohol, um, cigarettes. I, I was a big smoker at that period of my life. Weed. I had started smoking weed by this point in time. Attention from older guys, uh, having gone through puberty so young in life and, you know, kind of being the youngest child with older sisters and being exposed to their friend groups and stuff like that. I definitely related more to people that were older than me rather than the the peers in my class. And the people <laughs> the people in my class didn't have a lot of interest in me either. Um, you know, I just, I was still an outsider, but I got attention from older guys and I liked the attention. And my other big coping mechanism uh, at this point that I started to develop was overachieving. I think I think this is something that comes with the territory of being a youngest child um, to a parent that's an alcoholic. There's kind of, you know, like a specific archetype of the the family dynamic that comes along with that. But as the youngest child, I was very much a peacekeeper really tried to, to keep the status quo and and stuff like that. And so it was clear to me that if I was getting good grades, if I was achieving and I was doing good on paper, that nothing else really would matter. Like no, no one would question the other things that may or may not be happening in my life if I appeared to be doing well. So, you know, I was getting all A's in school, I was on the honor roll, and it was really important to me to kind of maintain that status of, of being like the good kid. But, you know, I was still, I was still drinking, smoking, getting drugs, hanging out around older guys allowed me to get, you know, cigarettes and alcohol and weed. 
And I really liked having access to those kinds of things. And so that kind of continued to ramp up. I would, you know, get more and more access to basically whatever I needed to kind of get out of my own head. When I was 14, I was in my freshman year of high school and uh, my friends and I got a big jug of vodka. I think like one of those gallon sized jugs of vodka. And, you know, we're excited because we're going to, we're going to get wasted. We're going to have a party and (laughs) not like a real party, but it's just like a party with three of us. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) we we got the big jug of vodka. It's interesting. I remember the first night that we had it, we drank until we blacked out and the last thing I remember saying to my friends that night uh, before I blacked out was I said, the definition of insanity is repeating the same behavior over and over again, expecting different results. Wow. And I have no idea why I came up with that. <laughs> like the thing I was going to say, um, but it definitely is kind of a theme that, you know, in- insanity is repeating the same behavior over and over again, expecting different results is kind of a theme that continued throughout my life but I you know I made that grand announcement to the group I blacked out immediately and I was gone I don't anything else that happened that night but the following day first thing in the morning uh we we poured the vodka into water bottles and took it to school so I had my own uh 16 ounce water bottle full of vodka and we got to school at about eight o'clock in the morning and uh, me and one of my friends had a free class period together that we, we didn't have to go to class. And so we started drinking immediately first thing in the morning. And within just a couple hours, I think it was like 10 or 11 a.m., I had finished uh, all 16 ounces of my my bottle of vodka that I was drinking by myself. And at this point in time, I was like, five feet tall. I probably weighed about 120 pounds. And the last thing I remember that morning is turning the water bottle upside down and getting the last couple drops down my throat. And then I blacked out. I don't remember anything else from that point until about eight hours later that I woke up uh, in my mom's living room. But apparently, (laughs) as soon as I finished uh, my last few drops of vodka, I started vomiting uncontrollably. Uh, the school had to call an, an ambulance to come get me. I went to the ER and, with alcohol poisoning, and I was told I, I could have died. I really almost killed myself then and there at school at 14 years old. So when I came to my mom's living room later that evening, my mom was furious. <laughs> she was so mad at me. Um, as you can imagine, if she was mad at me when I was six for having a panic attack, she was really mad at me when I was in high school and I was sent to the emergency room with alcohol poisoning. And she told me that I was going to be an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. And so it was, it was kind of understood family lore that my sisters and I were, you know, eventually going to be on the same, same path to be an alcoholic be alcoholics ourselves one way or another. Yeah, they really kind of nailed it into me that that I was kind of destined for alcoholism when I was 14 years old. And my mom and her boyfriend uh, sat me down. They made me listen to audio recordings of AA meetings. I remember, you know, listening to these these old timer speakers tell their stories None of it resonated with me because I, as far as I was concerned, it was an isolated incident and 
it was not they didn't equate to an alcohol problem. Uh, I didn't understand binge drinking or what that was or how it relates to alcohol problems or anything like that at 14 years old. And, you know, I know they all really meant well trying to warn me of the possible outcome of, you know, the mistakes I was making at such a young age, but they were, they taught me to ask myself the question, am I an alcoholic? And whenever you ask yourself the question, am I an alcoholic? Later in life, I, um, you know, would ask myself that question and, you know, look at the, the quizzes online and stuff. And you kind of, you, you find a criteria to measure yourself against. And if you don't fit into the criteria, then you are not an alcoholic. And if you're not an alcoholic, then there's nothing, there's nothing wrong and you don't have to change. And there's no reason to, to stop drinking or to cut back on drinking or anything else. And learning at 14 years old to ask myself, am I an alcoholic and try to compare myself against, you know, certain criteria, like what, what does my dad do and stuff like that. I've learned, you know, now that the question isn't, am I an alcoholic? The question is, is alcohol improving my life? Like, is this doing anything for me? Or, you know, perhaps would I be better without it? But it really, it really gave me, you know, in some ways at such a young age, it kind of gave me this like preordained destiny that like, you know, if you're told you're going to be something over and over again, you kind of try to fit into that mold almost subconsciously. And then also it gave me, these excuses that I was able to use for my my whole life by basically that, you know, I am I am not an alcoholic, so I don't have to make changes in my life. So I don't have to change what I'm doing. And I didn't change what I was doing through the rest of high school. I continued to drink. I started smoking weed very regularly, um, occasionally experimenting with cocaine, too. By the time I was 16 years old, I entered into a really toxic relationship and I continued to overcompensate by doing really well in school and overachieving. But in the background, I was, I was being cheated on, cheated on. I was being gaslit. I was becoming more and more codependent. And I was, I was ashamed at how bad I was being treated, but I didn't want anybody to know. It was another, another little secret. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Whenever I found out that something was going on in my relationship, I didn't open up to my friends. I absolutely didn't discuss it with my family. And so I focused on doing well in school. And if I was doing well in school, then nobody knew anything was wrong. Nobody even had a reason to question whether or not anything was wrong. And so, you know, at this point, I started drinking a lot more. I was going to school hungover. I tried to, I almost had like rules with alcohol at this point. Uh, You know, I didn't drive drunk. I didn't let my friends drive drunk. I preferred to drink at you know, either my house or a friend's house. I didn't like to drink at parties or anything like that because I always drink more than everyone else. I always drink faster than everyone else. And I usually ended up passing out before everyone else. But because of that, I was able to go to sleep without embarrassing myself because I was gone before everyone else was. And yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone had any reason to question how much I was drinking or anything because everyone was kind of focused on themselves at that point. You know, my friends were 
still drinking whenever I went to bed. So, I mean, if anyone had a problem, it was them, not me, because they're the ones that are still drinking. But there was no awareness that I, you know, I had drank twice as much as them twice as quickly and that, you know, I just, I didn't have an off switch, basically. And I, I was in that relationship for many years and it was, it was always dramatic. Uh, there was definitely a, a lot of emotional abuse happening. Later on, I would say there was a little bit of physical sexual abuse. I, I absolutely hated myself and I didn't believe that I deserved any better. I was so codependent that I was scared to be alone when I was, I was scared to leave. I was afraid that nobody would ever, you know, care about me outside of that relationship. And that was definitely due to a lot of the manipulation that I was being put through. I ended up graduating high school. I graduated early. I earned uh, all my credits early and left high school about a semester before everyone else. And as soon as I turned 18, I moved to San Francisco to go to art school for uh, college. And the piece of shit that I was dating at the time, he moved up to San Francisco too, and we began living together. And so at this point in time, I was kind of falling apart behind the scenes, but I was really hiding it well on the surface. I, between graduating early and going to college early and all this stuff, I really looked like I had my shit together. But my sister, Angela, who is about three years older than me, she started really having a lot of trouble hiding the problems that she was having. Angela and I were always really close. When we were younger, we shared a room. If I was scared when I was little, I would go sleep on the floor of her bedroom because there's no way in hell I was going to go into my mom's room. Because <laughs> 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 it was intense, you know? That's I was nice. scared to bring any issue to her at that point. But, you know, Angela was, she was always there for me. And so her problems started, uh, she, at first she, you know, she drank and stuff like a normal teenager, I guess, but she got into a car accident and she, she was okay, but she left the hospital with chronic pain and that ended up developing into a pill addiction, um, which really started her into abusing alcohol much more heavily. After she was in her car accident, she was receiving a lot of medical care kind of in the aftermath of that. And the doctors told her really early on that she was causing severe liver damage. Um, I guess they were doing blood tests and stuff like that. And they were able to see the effects that the alcohol and pills were having on her. And she was told at about 20 years old that if she continued doing what she was doing, that she was going to kill herself because her liver was already showing damage. And I think my mom got wind of this and she loved, she loved telling us all that we were alcoholics. So she was swearing left and right that Angela was an alcoholic. I didn't believe her. I, you know, I felt like she had been calling me an alcoholic for years. She seemed to use the term all willy nilly and it didn't have a lot of weight behind it for me at that point. And honestly, I like worshiped Angela. I, I believe anything she said, and I was in denial that, she, you know, to me, she could do no wrong. And so even when we checked her into rehab and she continued to relapse, even when she ran away from rehab, I didn't believe that she had a problem. And she would come home uh, to visit with the family on holidays and stuff like that. And she would steal pain pills from my mom. 
And when she was confronted about it, she would put on this huge performance that crying and denying and, you know, I would never do that. And I'm working a program and I'm an AA and, you know, I, I don't do stuff like that. And I 100% believed her. I mean, she was, she was very believable and I wanted to believe her, but she was feeling the pain pills and she was running away from rehab to drink. Eventually, in time, through, you know, visiting her, visiting her at rehab and stuff like that, I started to understand that she did identify as an alcoholic. And I went to a bunch of AA meetings with her when I was about 17 years old. Um, and the AA meetings actually started to resonate with me at that point in time. And I, in a lot of ways, I emulated Angela. So I think, you know, when she, when it started clicking for her, in some ways, my own shit started to click for me. And I actually remember telling uh, the toxic guy that I was with at that time, you know, I think I'm an alcoholic. And I was, you know, I was only 17 years old. And he turned to me and he said, I agree. I think you are. But, uh, but that was it. That was the end of the conversation. It didn't make us change our habits. And honestly, there was so much baggage around the word alcoholic and so much stigma, uh, especially in my family in the way that you know, it was thrown around with myself and with my sisters. And, you know, that, you know, brings up the question again, am I an alcoholic? And, you know, am I an alcoholic like my dad? Am I an alcoholic like Angela? What does it mean if I'm an alcoholic? Do do I have to go sit in church basements and go to AA meetings? And am I going to become friends with a bunch of old biker dudes? <laughs> you know, I, I, I was still, you know, asking the wrong question. And the the stigma around alcoholism was just too much. And I don't I didn't use that word again, you know, for many, many years. But Angela was continuing to spiral out of control. She ended up she left uh, rehab for good and she started living in a homeless shelter and she was kicked out of the homeless shelter and was living on the street. And then she started kind of bouncing from home to home, random men that she met. And she ended up staying in a, a really bad, uh, hotel with this much older man, very strange guy. And around this time, she just stopped contacting us. She kind of cut off the family. And my mom called me in a frenzy one day because she hadn't been able to get a hold of Angela for weeks. And she was worried that something happened to her. She had tried calling the police and stuff like that, but nobody had been able to track her down. And so my other sister, Melissa, my oldest sister, uh, she and I were both living in the San Francisco area at the time. And so we met up and we drove the five hours down from San Francisco to Southern California to the hotel that she was last staying in. Um, and we found her there. And she was completely unrecognizable. She, her hair was greasy. Her skin was super pale. Her face was incredibly bloated. There was no definition in her face. And she was really, really skinny. Um, in addition to the substance issues she had, she had also been uh, dealing with bulimia a lot for years. And I think probably by this point, she just wasn't even eating at all. But she, she didn't look like anyone I knew I didn't recognize her um and she didn't act like the sister that I had looked up to my whole life and I was I was just really in shock that that it had gotten to that point 
And then Melissa and I sat her down and we, we talked to her, you know, we tried to shame her and we tried to say, we miss you. <laughs> we tried every angle on it basically for hours. I think eventually she just got sick of it and she agreed to go to an AA meeting the following day with a woman that she knew from rehab. So we were satisfied with that and we set it up that she would go to an AA meeting the following day and we left to go drive back up to San Francisco. Uh, before we left, I remember telling her that if she didn't get her shit together, that the next time I drive down from San Francisco down to Southern California, it wouldn't be to go visit with her. It would be to go to her funeral. And sure enough, the next day, she refused to answer the door whenever her rehab friend came to pick her up to go to a meeting. She refused to get help. And I was pissed. I was pissed that she didn't do what she agreed to do. And we never spoke again. About a month later, a month after I got back up to San Francisco, I received a call that Angela had died. She died in her sleep in the hotel room that we left her in. She died in bed next to that strange older man that she had been staying with. And basically, just like the doctor said was going to happen, her liver stopped functioning properly, and that caused her heart to give out. And she was only 22 years old. Yeah, it was incredibly young, and it it was heartbreaking. I was only 19. She was the world to me. She was, you know, as far as I was concerned, she was the coolest girl in the world. And so it really should have been a cautionary tale for me of what alcohol can do to you. But in a lot of ways, it almost started to hammer in the criteria of what alcoholism looks like. And so I had my dad to compare myself against, who was, you know, a long-term alcohol abuser, who was extremely overweight, he was abusive, he abandoned his family. And then I had my sister who had basically given up eating in favor of drinking alcohol, had given up her family as well. And she she had gone so hard so fast that she killed herself at 22 years old uh, as a result from her drinking. And so over and over again for years, I would use them as kind of a point of reference for myself. You know, I'm not, I'm not like my dad. I'm not like Angela. So there's no way that what I'm doing is problematic. And so instead of being a cautionary tale, it really just, it just gave me more criteria to compare myself against. And at this point, I was, you know, I'm 19 years old. I'm living in San Francisco. I'm in this horrible relationship. I'm going to college. I'm supporting this guy financially that's living with me. He can't hold a job at all. He's sleeping with other people. And I was just feeling really isolated and really codependent, just terrified to leave, terrified to even admit that there was anything wrong with the relationship. And at this point, I had started smoking weed every single day. I would wake up in the morning, wake and bake. I would smoke all day long. And then a lot of evenings, I would drink until I passed out, as we do. And uh, around this point in time, uh, this guy started bringing home cocaine. It was something I hadn't tried in years since I was in high school, but I fell in love with cocaine quickly. 
cocaine allowed me to smoke weed all day, drink all night, and the party could keep going. I wouldn't pass out before everybody else. I could, I could rage through. And I, you know, I experimented with other stuff. I experimented with ecstasy and mushrooms, but I love cocaine. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I manipulated every occasion that I could into an opportunity to go score some. You know, at this point, my sister's dead. I'm grieving, but I don't know how to grieve. But my life really consisted of getting good grades, smoking weed, drinking alcohol, and snorting cocaine. So I remember one night we had been doing a bunch of coke and ran out and couldn't get any more. And the guy that I'm living with brings out some meth. I don't even know where he got it from. He didn't tell me that he brought home meth that day, but he he had meth on him. And I was so gone at that point in the night, I didn't think twice about it. And I smoked meth for the first time. And it, it really kicked my ass. It didn't, it wasn't a habitual thing. I only smoked meth probably a handful of times, but when I did it, I would be awake for days on end. I started missing classes. My grades started to drop for the first time in my life. And I was, I was becoming a mess. I was really starting to deteriorate mentally. At this point in time, uh, I started seeing a therapist. My mom made me find a therapist after my sister died. So I'd have somebody to talk to about it. The therapy sessions were incredibly unproductive. I didn't talk. I just sat there staring at her the entire time. The therapist fell asleep several times while I was seeing her during the sessions. But I was going, you know, I was putting up the front that everything was okay. I was doing what it was asked of me. I kind of cracked. I I shaved my head. Uh, this was, you know, around the the era of Britney Spears shaving her head and kind of losing her mind. And I guess, I don't know, I probably got the idea from TV as, as I did a lot of things in my life. But I shaved my head. One night I smoked, I guess, apparently too much meth. And I woke up through the night that night and I was convinced that there was a white figure floating above my bed. I'm not a religious person. I'm not a ghost hunter or anything, (laughs) but you know, it could have been Angela. It was most likely a meth delusion, but it freaked me out. And in the morning I woke up and instead of canceling my appointment with my therapist, like I normally would have done, I went and showed up at her office with my shaved head, all freshly shaved. I was withdrawing from meth. And I told her the truth. I actually spoke up and told her what was going on. I told her that I had been, you know, doing coke and doing meth and just that I was a shit show, basically. I actually never went to see her again. That was the last session that I had with that therapist. But the cat was out of the bag. And after having spoken the truth and having kind of taken my shame from the dark to the light, as Renee Brown would say... I, I there was no turning back for me at that point and I knew what I was doing with the drugs that I was doing that it was wrong and that I was on the wrong path and that it was dangerous and after telling my therapist about it I never did it again I I never smoked meth again I never did cocaine again after that day um and you know I I thought about it <laughs> I definitely thought about it quite a bit for a few months but yeah I, I was done with that stuff and 
I, but I continued drinking and I continued smoking weed and in my mind, that stuff was acceptable. You know, alcohol is legal, so there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol as far as I was concerned. And weed's a plant, you know? (laughs) You know, I was convinced that there was nothing wrong with that lifestyle. And so that felt safe to me. And so I continued drinking and I continued smoking weed. And about a year later, I went to go visit my mom for New Year's Eve and went to a party with her and her friends. And I got blackout drunk, which, you know, was something that I was doing pretty often when I was drinking by that point because I just didn't have an off switch. Uh, and when I woke up in the morning on New Year's Day, I was incredibly hungover. I was incredibly sick. I was really ashamed from, you know, saying God knows what to God knows who and having you know, my parents or my mom and my stepdad having seen me like that. And it was, so it was January 1st and that happens to be my grandmother's birthday. And so we went to go drive to pick up my grandmother to take her out for her birthday. And I was so hungover in the car and I was feeling so sick. And I remember hanging my head out the car window and just puking my brains out with my little 83 year old grandmother sitting in the seat next to me. And it was, it was a new rock bottom. I mean, this, I was 20 years old. My sister had died from alcoholism one year before that. And I'm just, instead of spending time with my grandma on her birthday, I'm vomiting and hungover and shaking in the seat next to her in the car. And so I, I started to see that maybe something wasn't working. And I wasn't even 21 yet. 21 is the legal drinking age in the U.S. I was still about six months shy of my 21st birthday, and I thought, you know, maybe I should take a break. Maybe I should stop drinking until I turn 21, kind of reset my body. I didn't want to quit for good. It was never, ever my intention to stop drinking for good. I very much so intended to start drinking again as soon as I turned 21, but I thought, you know, maybe I need this reset, and I kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Between January 1st and then June of that year, I didn't have a single drop of alcohol. And I started making other changes in my life, too. I started eating vegan. I lost about 40 pounds. I started to trust myself again, and I started to respect myself. And I never once correlated these improvements in my life with the fact that I wasn't drinking alcohol. But after a few months of this, I realized that this toxic relationship I was in just was not working. It was becoming really, really obvious that I was being cheated on. The gaslighting that usually made me deny that anything was happening just wasn't working anymore. And I broke up with the guy. By the time I turned 21 and I hadn't drank alcohol in six months, I was honestly a completely different person. I was unrecognizable. I had lost so much weight. I was really taking care of myself. Yeah, leaving that relationship was was a really, really big step for me. It was something that I had been stuck in for years and didn't know how to get out of. Well, it's almost you were given like the 21 mark for yourself was rite of passage. Now it was it was giving you permission. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, as far as I was concerned, everybody drinks when they're 21. And so there's no way that I wasn't going to drink when I was 21. So on my 21st birthday, I 
fully planned to go out and have drinks with my friends. I've been waiting for that day for months. I mean, three years, really, but <laughs> really, really waiting for it for months now. I went out bar hopping with my friends. The last thing I remember that night is getting into a cab. And then I blacked out. And I woke up in the morning in a strange house that I didn't recognize with people there that I didn't know. Um, I was asleep on the floor of some room. And for some reason, all around me were shards of broken glass. I had no idea what happened. I had no idea where I was, how the glass broke, but I freaked out and I got the hell out of there. It never once occurred to me that I had started the pattern of binge drinking over exactly where I had left off six months earlier. As far as I was concerned, it was my 21st birthday and I partied and that's what people do when they're 21. But really, I had I had just picked up right where I left off, and I was repeating the exact same behavior, expecting different results, which, you know, <laughs> as I had told everybody years earlier, was the definition of insanity. It's insane behavior. You know, they say with when you quit drinking and you relapse and stuff that you do pick up back where you left off and, you know, even plus some because you have all the time that you didn't drink. And I think... I didn't, you know, I never would have considered that a relapse because I chose to quit drinking with the understanding that I would go back to it. But it really, really should have proven to me in many ways that that's absolutely true and that, you know, no, nothing had really been gained from my break, my time away from drinking. All it did was confirm to me in my mind that I didn't have a problem because I was able to stop drinking for six months without issue. And people that have problems with alcohol aren't able to just stop for six months without, you know, without issue. They have cravings and they go to meetings. And so to me, it was, it was clear to me (laughs) that I did not have a problem and that it was not an issue at all. You know, things stayed pretty mellow for a while. A few months later, I met Chris, uh, who's now my husband, uh, we started dating. I, I really wasn't looking for a relationship at the time, but he was great. I mean, he was really kind of stable and normal. He was not a big drinker and he was honest and kind and he was really just the polar opposite of everyone I had ever dated. Uh, our relationship moved quickly. I, I graduated college. I started working as a graphic designer for a local cosmetics company in San Francisco. It felt like everything was going the way it should. I had this dream job. I, you know, I was really high achieving, which was really important to me. I was, I started defining myself by my career. I loved telling people what I was doing. I thought it, you know, it sounded so good on paper. It was something that my mom could be proud of. But the stress level at my job was really high. And I didn't know how to manage the stress. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And all I knew was that to me, I had, I had to maintain the job, I had to maintain the status quo, because Failure was not an option. I've always been the kind of person who puts a ton of pressure on myself. But the culture at the job that I was working for was also really high pressure. The CEO of the company would tell me stuff like if I didn't get a certain project done within an hour that the company was going to lose a million dollars to a 21 year old kid that was 
it was an insane amount of pressure. I was, I was incredibly overwhelmed. I, I really, really took stuff like that to heart and I was crying almost every night after work. But it was, it was a while until my drinking really started to get out of control again. Over the next couple of years, Chris and I, we started to drink more and more, but we were really like, we were classy about it. We did stuff that was like age appropriate and felt normal. Like we would go to Napa and do wine tastings. We joined a wine club and we, you know, we would swirl our wine and sniff it <laughs> before we drink it and stuff like that. And we would discuss the, the flavors and the, the oakiness and stuff like that. And, but I think in the back of my mind, I knew I was just trying to get wasted. I was really just kind of trying to check out for a while, but life was just feeling really unmanageable. I was still smoking weed every day, all day, every day, but my tolerance was getting way too high and I just needed something more to kind of, to keep myself at, you know, that numb place that I needed to be at. That totally makes sense. You have to overcompensate for the stress that you were under at work. And that is totally normal. How we, that side is justified that if I'm functional, I don't have, don't have. To yeah. Work. Yeah. And I never really was taught like stress management skills as a child. I was just kind of taught that if I spoke about something that it was going to be an inconvenience to the people around me. I mean, even at a young age, when I was, when I was overwhelmed and stressed, I was cutting myself. I was, it was always self-destructive behavior. There was never like actual self-soothing happening. As kind of, uh, my solution to the problems that I was having at my job, Chris and I decided to start our own business. Uh, and I think the end of 2012. And so we were designing products and 3D printing them and selling them online. And I think the eventual goal was that I would segue from this job that was stressing me out into, you know, doing my own thing, you know, running my own business and being my own boss. But really, uh, my overwhelm was just at an all-time high. I was trying to maintain my stressful career and then trying to build a business on top of that. The stress and pressure just kept increasing and increasing instead of decreasing like I was hoping it would. The business that we were running started to become somewhat successful. We bought some pretty expensive 3D printing equipment, leased it rather. <laughs> we, we had a payment. <laughs> um, and Chris left his job so he could be more involved in the business because his background is in engineering and, you know, he was the, the person to be doing the 3D printing rather than myself. Even though these things were markers for success as part of our business plan, it really just ended up increasing the pressure even more as, you know, the the breadwinner of the family in some ways at that point. They, you know, it just made leaving my job or trying to reduce the stress at my job feel impossible. Then a lot of stuff in my life started to get really complicated. In 2013, a lot of stuff went wrong back to back. So at the beginning of the year, I had a miscarriage. Even though I was not in any way ready to be a mom, it was, it was devastating and it, it really took a big toll on my body. I think everything from, you know, the disturbing process of what kind of goes into having a miscarriage, but also hormonally and stuff like that. 
Chris and I have always had a ton of love, but we didn't necessarily have the tools to deal with something like that. We we didn't really have the communication skills to to talk to each other about it, and we just really didn't talk to each other about it much. And I really kept it a secret from almost everyone. I, I told very few people. My family didn't know. Most of my friends didn't know. Uh, a few weeks after the miscarriage, uh, my grandma ended up dying. The same woman that I was vomiting next to on New Year's Day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was she was an old woman. She had a good long life and stuff like that. But we had been close when I was younger. It was definitely a hard loss, and it was hard watching my mom go through the loss of her parent and all the kind of stuff that goes along with losing a grandparent. And then a few months after my grandma died, uh, Darren died. Darren was Angela's fiance before she went to rehabs. He was kind of like an older brother to me when I was in high school. And after Angela died, we kept in touch a little bit. At this point in time, it was, I guess it was 2013. Angela had been dead for about seven years, but Darren was still taking it really hard. He had gone to rehab recently. And when he got out, he got this huge memorial tattoo for Angela on his back that basically covered his entire back. And he was he was found dead in his car in a parking lot with a plastic bag over his head. And there was a bunch of empty cans of moss around him. And his family was very religious and they insisted it was an accidental overdose. But a lot of his friends and I have come to believe that it was a suicide. And we weren't, Darren and I weren't that close. We didn't talk very often, but it really, really hit close to home, losing somebody who was so close to Angela and it was such a connection to her. You know, if, if I did have contact with him, he really, really reminded me of my sister and it felt like there was still this extension of her around. And so losing him and then the kind of disturbing nature of his death was, was a lot to deal with. A few months after Darren died, uh, I think, Towards the end of that year, uh, one of my best friends, Krista, died. Krista, she got pneumonia. She'd been suffering from, from some pretty bad depression and stuff like that. And I'm not sure that she dealt with the pneumonia in as timely a manner as she should have. And she ended up, by the time she went to the hospital because she was so sick, uh, it was too late. She had sepsis and she died a few days later. And so this was just like... Maybe in like a 12 month to 13 month period, all of this happened. And it was just like back to back, lost, death, lost, death. Basically four losses in about a year's time span. I was in a dark place. I, I was thinking about death a lot, you know, and I was getting very depressed. I think, uh, you know, my relationship was suffering a bit because of it. And I was drinking a lot. I was drinking almost every night by the end of that year and I remember I would start drinking <laughs> as soon as dinner was over because in my mind that was not problematic behavior and I would drink until I passed out at night. I I actually remember thinking to myself at one point in time that something had to change or else I was going to die and I'm not sure that I actually believe that was true but I I definitely uh I was really submerged in 
the culture of death at that point because it felt like you know everything or everyone around me was dying and everything was dying and so it seemed like you know a reasonable thought to me that that I was going to end up dying if I kept carrying on the way I was and then something did change I actually uh, at the beginning of 2014 I found out I was pregnant with my daughter Zoe so I stopped drinking completely because that's what you do when you're when you're pregnant right and I had terrible morning sickness I was sick all day long for the first few months of my pregnancy and I really had no problem quitting drinking I didn't have cravings or anything I didn't miss drinking and I and then I it really allowed me to convince myself that there must have been nothing problematic about the way I was drinking if I had any kind of a problem with alcohol then it would have been hard to quit and I had no problem quitting when I was pregnant and I went nine months without drinking you know everything must be okay it was probably just a hard period in my life I've kind of put that all behind me after I gave birth to my daughter Zoe I started drinking again slowly not very much I had a few beers here and there and I, then I started smoking weed again which you know very quickly turned into an everyday all day kind of thing because being a new mom was really hard we're still running our business at this point I was the only parent with a paying job I was working from home and balancing the career that had been overwhelming me for years with my side hustle and then now a new baby just all at the same time the pressure if <laughs> the pressure wasn't high before the pressure felt extremely high now probably what ended up being a godsend in some ways the business came crashing down we got a big order that ended up being fraudulent we lost a lot of our savings trying to fill the order before the issue came to our attention and we didn't have money left to cover the equipment that we were paying for. And we had really, it was disheartening and we lost a lot of momentum. So instead of fighting to kind of keep it going, uh, we let the business become absorbed by another company. In exchange, uh, Chris got a paying job for the, with the other company, which, you know, was a really great thing at that point in our lives. The job that he was working at with the new company didn't last long. And eventually we started really kind of struggling financially again. So we started discussing what, what's next? Like, what are we going to do? Chris was at a crossroads in his career and I'm not happy at work. And we had to kind of figure out what, what are our next steps? And so he has always wanted to be a pilot ever since he was a little kid. He wanted to fly airplanes. And so we decided, you know, we're getting the old, older. We're not spring chickens anymore. And it's time for him to go pursue that dream while we're still, you know, mildly young. Uh, we decided he would start going to flight school to get the certifications he needs to become a pilot. Uh, but flight school is incredibly expensive. In 2018, we made the decision to basically sell everything we own and move from California to Pennsylvania to go live in a spare bedroom in my mom's house. And that way we could save money to pay for his flight change. So we sold everything we owned that, you know, we had spent years kind of building up except for what we could fit into our two cars to take across country. And the whole process was really stressful from trying to sell stuff and dealing with logistics and, you know, getting the house ready to give back 
to our landlord and all that kind of stuff. During the time that we were preparing to move, we started drinking every day. By the time, you know, we were done with our, our work day kind of stuff and it was the evening and it was just the only way that we knew to unwind and kind of relax. And I kept thinking, you know, this is just, this is just a stressful period of time. And, you know, once, once we leave California and we're driving across country, there's no way we're going to be drinking every day. And then we left California and we drove across country and we drank every day of the drive. And I kept telling myself, well, this, you know, this, this is just a stressful time again. We're driving, you know, driving all day is hard. And, you know, once we get to Pennsylvania and we're in this little room in my mom's house, there's no way we're going to be drinking every night. We arrived there. We continued drinking every night. We brought a little fridge for our bedroom. We kept it stocked with beer. When any chance we could, we would go out and buy booze and sneak it upstairs when nobody was looking or when nobody was home. Uh, we had these big black trash bags basically under our bed filled with empty beer bottles and we would wait till nobody was around to take them out so they couldn't hear the clinking sound of the bottles hitting each other. And yeah, any chance we had, we just snuck off to, to go drink. And at this point in time, our daily drinking habit was really cemented. It was, it was there. The daily drinking, yeah, it, it was, <laughs> we were, we were not able to get past it. And I, this was about when I started waking up at, you know, three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning with a ton of anxiety, hating myself and being, promising myself that I would not drink the next day. And by the time I was off work the next evening, I had no willpower left and I would just start the cycle all over again. And I really started to lose a lot of self-respect and trust in myself. I was really getting incredibly depressed between the, you know, the living situation and our financial situation and the effects of the alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And then after we had been living at my mom's house, for about six months, she was diagnosed with lung cancer, which came as a complete shock. She wasn't a smoker. She was a nurse. She lived healthy. And yeah, it, it seemed completely unreal. But my mom pretended like everything was going to be okay. Uh, being a nurse, I'm sure she knew the truth. It was stage four cancer. But she pretended like everything was okay, and that gave me an excuse to pretend like everything was okay. And I was really in complete denial that that the cancer that she had may eventually kill her. I was I was sure that she was going to get past it and fight it, and you know it would go into remission, and this was just going to be something that was in the past eventually. And so Chris. I uh, completed his training to get his private pilot's license and he was ready to start getting his commercial certification so he could get a job uh, working as a pilot. And the program that we chose for him to do that at was in Florida. So about a month after my mom was diagnosed with cancer, we started finalizing our plans to move from Pennsylvania to Florida. And I was still in complete denial that my mom's condition was essentially fatal. And I think, I think in a lot of ways, my mom knew that if she told me that she was dying, that I wouldn't leave. 
and she thought she was protecting uh, Chris and I by making sure that we didn't put our goals on pause to stay and care for her. But, you know, I'm a big girl and I have autonomy. <laughs> I, I did not, I chose to continue being in denial and even right before we moved, I, we found out that her cancer had spread to her brain, but I left anyway. I didn't stay to help take care of her. I didn't stay to help assist my stepdad, uh, with, you know, with taking her to doctor's appointments and stuff like that. I just, I didn't have the clarity of mind, I think, to kind of step away from the plans that I had already put into place. And think, you know, maybe this isn't the best thing. Maybe, maybe my mom needs me right now. I just, I heard, you know, everything's going to be okay. Don't stop what you're doing. And I went with it. So we moved to Florida for the next six months. Continued to drink every single day. But I would go visit my mom as often as I could. Uh, My daughter and I would fly out to Pennsylvania about once a month and see her. But Right before Christmas that year, she had a stroke and she was put into hospice care. And I think this is the first time it finally dawned on me that she was dying, that this was actually the end. You know, we were told by doctors that she had, you know, a week or two left top. She didn't have months left or anything like that. We already had plane tickets to go visit her for Christmas, just to spend Christmas together as a family. And so we flew down, but, you know, instead of flying down to enjoy the holiday together, we were flying down, flying up rather, flying north to, to say goodbye to her. And it was terrible seeing her in hospice. She, she was already gone by the time I got there mentally. She didn't wake up or speak or anything by the time I had gotten to her bedside. And she she looked like a zombie. She was unrecognizable. She was frail and pale and making these terrible grunting noises. My sister Melissa and I basically sat by her bedside for days just waiting for her to die. You could hear her choking on her own spit. And she has you know, many friends in the the medical field. That just must have solidified it, making it all these losses in such a short period of time of people that are your loved ones. And then it was all of a sudden, now you have to devastate the truth that your mom, you know, in such a short period of time, in septum, that she was going to die. It must have been so devastating. Yeah, yeah, it was really like a hard smack in the face because it wasn't something I ever expected would happen as far as I was concerned. My whole life, my mom was so strong and could could kind of get past anything. And even with having lost so many people, I was never there with anybody when they were dying. And witnessing that was, you know, next level kind of stuff. Her nurse friends would come visit her in the hospital. We could hear her choking on her own spit. And I remember several of her friends telling Melissa and I that if we lowered her bed, that she would actually choke to death on her own saliva. And they told us that that was the most humane thing, was to let her choke to death instead of letting her sit there and suffer. We we were horrified. We We didn't lower her bed. We didn't forced her to choke on her choke to death on her own saliva because I 
did not have the tools to deal with that kind of thing. It it was insane. It was an insane thing in my mind to be told that I should be doing, but it also was really conflicting because I didn't know if by choosing not to essentially kill her that that you know was I choosing to force her suffering to go on longer. But we didn't do it, and we stayed by her bedside. And after about a week, she she died. She was gone. So sorry for all your love. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Viv. I really appreciate that. And I mean, the whole thing just felt like you said it was so fast. It had been a, only about a year since we left California to move to Pennsylvania. From the point that we left California, it was about a year until she actually died. Between her diagnosis and, and everything, it just, it all went so fast. So I returned home to Florida uh, and continued to drink every day for almost another two years. You know, I'm somebody at this point in my life who's pretty well-versed in grief, but losing my mom was the worst grief I've ever felt. There was so much guilt and shame for not having been there with her in those final months that, you know, she was sick and her and my stepdad really could have used my help with the caretaking. And I just, I couldn't even deal with those feelings. And my drinking started to escalate and I started really kind of I guess getting out of control, I would say. I started driving drunk, which is something that I always said I would never do. It started as like a one-time thing, of course. Before I knew it, I was driving drunk with my daughter in the car on a regular basis. I never crashed the car. I never got a DUI or anything like that. But I I betrayed myself. I betrayed my own morals. And I was just doing it over and over again between, you know, leaving my mom when she was sick and putting my daughter at such high risk and all this stuff. And it really, you know, was taking a toll on my self-respect and my trust in myself. And then, you know, the world shut down just a few months later, a few months after my mom died, uh, when COVID hit and everything shut down. I, you know, instead of this being a time where maybe I would have started questioning what I was doing to myself, Society started really normalizing drinking and normalizing daily drinking. You know, there's liquor stores where essential businesses and there's like the quarantining and everyone's stocking up on beer along with their toilet paper and their milk. And it, it, it allowed me to lean into my drinking and I didn't have to take my daughter to school early and everything, everything that I had been doing this whole time that was kind of you know, another shameful secret of mine was really being normalized in society. And it seemed like it was widely accepted. I think I started drinking even more. And I did, I knew I didn't have an off switch because I've never had an off switch with my drinking. And so I continued, you know, making rules. I didn't, liquor would make me black out. So I would drink beer, but then the beer I was drinking was like a double IPA and that was too strong. And that was making me black out and I was getting sick and I started drinking, you know, wine. And eventually I moved to, to White Claw because White Claw was low calorie. And of course, you know, it has really low alcohol percentage. And so it made it really easy for me to manage my drinking you know, I didn't have to to worry about how many I was drinking or anything uh, because I, you know, it didn't cause me to black out. But I still was hungover every single day. 
you know, being hungover and, you know, not getting enough sleep and all that kind of stuff. I was getting really depressed and I became really emotionally unstable and I started kind of having like anger issues. I would wake up every day just kind of pissed off at the world and I was not treating the people around me very well. I was kind of cold and distant with Chris and definitely not communicating with him. And I was just flat out mean to my daughter, Zoe, which is something, you know, she's the most important person in my entire life. And so it's something that I feel a ton of guilt and shame about even now to this day. You know, the way I treated her just wasn't right. From the moment that she woke up in the morning, I was already out of patience with her. I yelled way too much. I was making kind of nasty, unnecessary comments to her. And I was really emotional all the time. And I was kind of acting like a toddler. And I was displaying all these behaviors to her. And she was seeing this as normal behavior. And I didn't realize that I was doing it, of course, until she started to exhibit the same behaviors herself. And so she's only about six years old at this point in time, and she would get out of bed angry at the world. She was was having her own emotional tantrum. We couldn't figure out why. We had no idea why she was having these behavior issues. And I, I, you know, once again in my life, didn't have the clarity to see what was happening for what it was. You know, it's really obvious to me now that it was a direct result of my own behavior. But at the time... I kind of felt like a chicken or an egg situation. You know, is she, is she having emotional tantrums because I'm losing my temper or am I losing my temper because she's having emotional tantrums? Yeah, I just, I really didn't know how to deal with it and didn't deal with it very well. And then at the end of 2020, our dog died. She basically dropped dead out of nowhere and it was really, really shocking. She had some medical issues and, you know, had been on medication for a long time, but I, I gave her her meds and I honestly, I was convinced that I kind of had a part in her death because sometimes I would forget to give her her medicine. Sometimes I drank too much and I gave her her meds and I forgot that I'd given them to her and she would get a second dose and she just really wasn't being cared for as well as she should have, especially not with the medical issues that she had. And I don't know what the cause of death was specifically, but but I definitely felt a lot of guilt related to it. And my whole family was devastated. I mean, she was an integral part of our family unit. We had had her since she was a puppy, since before my daughter was born. And there was just the three of us, just me, Chris, Zoe, and then the dog. And so my daughter was incredibly, incredibly devastated. She was already dealing with the grief of losing her grandmother and then losing basically a member of the household. So soon after, the dog was a huge, huge loss to her. And that's not even to mention all the instability and emotional issues that were happening at home. And we were all kind of just a mess. And this actually ended up being kind of the catalyst to start making some changes in my life, which is, I think, in some ways ironic that it it took our dog dying, you know, my, my mom dying, my sister dying, Darren, you know, all these things that happened in my life, 
nothing really woke me up <laughs> in the same way that that dog dying did. But it really made me start taking my health more seriously and taking, you know, the health of my family more seriously. Up until this point in time, I really had struggled with doing any kind of adult behaviors at all. I couldn't, I never got the trash out on trash night. I always had dirty dishes in the sink. My laundry was always everywhere. <laughs> I, I struggled to, you know, make doctor's appointments and God knows how long it had been since I got a teeth cleaning and all that kind of shit. I started, you know, kind of putting the health of my family and the health of myself as, you know, I don't know about first, but pretty pretty high up in, in the chain of, uh, of what was important to me. And so uh, Chris and I had been engaged for years, but we finally got married. It was still COVID, so we just did kind of like a small courthouse style wedding. But doing that, it allowed me to add him to my medical insurance. He was able to, you know, start seeing doctors and receiving preventative care as well. And then I finally, I had my first primary care doctor myself. I, I established myself at a dermatologist, a gynecologist. I went to the dentist. I got my teeth cleaned. I started taking care of the stuff I had been neglecting for years. And I started, I started reading about nutrition and I started eating better and I started, you know, cooking real food for my family and stuff like that. I started reading self-help books and I started reading a lot of memoirs. The memoirs that really interested me interested me were the ones about people with drinking problems. And I think, you know, in some ways this is my family history, but it also, I think I realized at this point in time that my drinking was problematic and reading about other people dealing with that was eye-opening. I was still drinking every day at this point. But I, I was, I was opening my eyes more and I was starting to kind of see, see what was happening for what it was. We found a therapist for my daughter because we thought that it would help deal with kind of her emotional issues and then also the grief that she was suffering from, from our dog and her grandma and stuff. And we just kind of thought she needed somebody to talk to. And I would go to the therapy sessions with her. She's so young, so it would be me and her in the room. And she never really opened up to the doctor. She would kind of sit there and play card games with the, the therapist. But I started actually advocating for her and kind of using my own voice to tell them about, you know, the things that she was going through. And even though... The therapist didn't really have specific insight about it, and my daughter wasn't speaking up. It started to become really clear to me how my own behavior was affecting hers. As I said this stuff out loud, I started kind of connecting the dots that, you know, I would describe something that she had done, and a light bulb would go off in my head that that was something that I had you know, showed her, I had basically taught her how to do that stuff. I started to understand that somehow, I don't, I don't even know how I came to this conclusion, but I started to understand that I wasn't going to be able to be, to demonstrate reasonable emotional range for her unless I was, unless I did something about my drinking. So I understood that the drinking and being hungover all the time was a big part of why I was so emotionally unstable. I didn't quit drinking. I started trying to moderate. 
I started, you know, I tried to only drink on weekends or holidays or I tried to limit my drink count or, you know, I'd only only drink when we went out to dinner or only drink at home or, you know, before you know it, all of a sudden every day is a holiday. You always have something to celebrate and you're going out to dinner every night because you're allowed to drink at restaurants. And, you know, I I found ways to kind of manipulate my rules to work for me that I was still able to drink as much as I wanted. I I couldn't string together days without alcohol. I I never did, you know, like a dry July. Anyway, I I never could have even imagined doing like one of those 30-day challenges where where you don't drink for that length of time. I couldn't even go more than a couple days. But I I actually I followed Chrissy Teigen on Instagram, the model, and she talked about the book Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker. And she said that, it, you know, it really helped her quit drinking. I was, <laughs> I was too embarrassed to buy a book called Quit Like a Woman. And it took me months to kind of get up the balls to, to buy it. <laughs> and eventually I did. And I read Quit Like a Woman. And something really clicked for me. The way that Holly Whitaker talks about the alcohol industry and about, you know, the problems with the, you know, basically alcohol is an addictive substance. And just because you're drinking alcohol and finding it difficult to stop drinking alcohol doesn't mean that you are just intrinsically fucked up and unable to be like a normal human. It means that alcohol is an addictive substance. And she talked about the, you know, coming to the understanding that alcohol isn't actually doing anything for your life. And I, I got it. I wasn't ready to quit yet, but I understood that I needed to stop drinking and that moderation really wasn't an option. So I started, you know, working towards that goal. I started listening to Hollywood Whitaker and Laura McCallum's podcast, uh, home podcast, which had been, you know, out of print for years by that point. I started listening to that very regularly and I started kind of building up some tools. I, you know, I learned about meditation and they had a ton of quitlet resources that led me, you know, to other books and I started learning more about it. But somehow I knew that I just wasn't ready to give it up. You're sober. And then, yeah, I was sober curious for sure, (laughs) but I was not ready and I didn't know how I was going to get to that moment of clicking and actually being ready, ready. I knew I wanted to make that change in my life. And so around this time, uh, we agreed to bring my mother-in-law to live with us. She was, she was living in Arkansas and really not taking care of herself and going through a hard time. And she just needed somewhere to go to get back on her feet. And my mother-in-law is a problem drinker. She, she gets angry. She'll throw stuff. She'll go run off in the middle of the night. You have to go find her. She had, you know, come to visit us many times over the years and had these horrible drinking fits and we knew it was a problem. And so we set the boundary with her long before she moved in that she, when she came to stay with us, she would not be drinking in our home. And so I knew in the back of my mind that that meant that I could not really be drinking in my home. I had two options. I could either quit drinking 
Or I could go back to the way I was living in Pennsylvania at my mom's house, which was, you know, really, really hiding it upstairs, hiding booze in my room, having the big trash bags and all that stuff. And I really wasn't willing to go back to that lifestyle. And so we had a while until she came to stay with us. It was a couple months off, but I knew that I had this this kind of hard line in the sand coming up that I was going to have to cut off this habit completely. And so I told myself, you know, I need to quit drinking. I need to have this out of my system, not have it be a habit anymore long before she comes to live with us. Like there's no way that this is going to even be in my life by that point in time. And so I read quit like a woman again. I continued to listen to Hollywood Acres podcast. And I, I was not able to still string together more than a few days at a time. I, I felt like I was failing. Um, Holly Whitaker calls it practicing sobriety. She says, you know, before, if you're going to run a marathon, you would train before you ran the marathon. You wouldn't just go out and start running. And so even with something like sobriety, you have to practice it and train to do it before you're ready to actually you know, go in for the long haul. And so I practice sobriety and I practice sobriety and I, you know, I practice for a few days and I'd start drinking again and I'd practice for a few days and I'd start drinking again. I felt really hopeless in some ways that I didn't know. I understood all these concepts of why I wanted to stop drinking and I knew I wanted to stop drinking. My new moderation was not going to be the thing that got me out of this mess, but nothing seemed to work. I felt like I was trying everything at this point. I'd throw everything at the wall and just see what would stick. And I remember one night just crying and crying and dropping to my knees and just kind of begging somebody some you know invisible spirit or something to save me for myself and I surrendered and I knew I was just completely powerless and even though I'd gone to so many AA meetings I did not understand I was basically doing step one of AA by you know surrendering that I was powerless to alcohol but in a lot of ways I I did I guess I kept building up my resources without even knowing huh yeah, <laughs> maybe someday I'll get to step four, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I started, you know, building up my resources. I learned about meditation. I was still reading Quitlet. Holly Whitaker mentions a sobriety counter app in her book. She doesn't mention anything specific by name, but I went and looked in the app store and I found I am sober IAS and I downloaded it. It had really good reviews. I was not ready to go on and log day one because I knew I really wasn't ready to give it up. I don't do failure well, so I was not ready to go log log a day one and then have to reset. That didn't seem like an option to me. And so I kept practicing. But then our couple months was up and it was time to go get my mother-in-law from Arkansas. And so the day before our flight out to go get her... I basically got drunk all day long. I was completely wasted. And when I woke up in the morning for our flight, I was still drunk and I was so, so sick. I, I was on the airplane. I ended up getting seated next to two strangers. Um, and I was just trying so hard not to vomit on them. I honestly, I don't even know why they let me on the flight. I probably looked like I had COVID or something, but they, they let me on the plane and. 
I, at some point in time during that flight, I had the epiphany that there's no way I wanted to feel this way again. And on the layover from the flight, I opened up IAS and I pledged my day one. Uh, that was July 21st, 2021, and I have not had a drink since. My sober date is July 21st, 2021. So you're over a year? It, yes, I am. I'm a year and a couple weeks, and uh, I'm actually seven months clean off of weed now, as of today as well. Congratulations. Thank you. So when we went to go get my mother-in-law, we had to help her pack up her whole house and everything. And I ended up doing this like crazy manual labor. It felt like we were working like 12 hours a day and, you know, the middle of summer, it was like 95 degrees and 100% humidity. And it really, it was exhausting, but I think it really got me through that first week. I, I was working and sweating so bad all day long that, you know, I, I, I didn't experience a detox anything like, like what you did, Viv. You know, even if there had been anything like that, I don't even know if I would have felt it because I was just sweating and sweating all day long. And then by the time I got into bed at night, I just passed out. After that week was over, I returned back home um, and I started reading uh, May Cause Miracles by Gabby Bernstein, which is a 40-day program where there's like a daily reading and there's journaling exercises and meditating. And it kind of got me into a new routine, which at that point I was just looking for any other kind of routine that didn't revolve around drinking. By the time the 40-day program was over, I had, you know, I had gotten through the really bulk of the difficult time. You know, I think the first 30 days without drinking can be really, really difficult. And I got through that and I no longer had the daily habit of drinking and I was building new routines. I really decided to immerse myself in sobriety culture. I somehow understood that I was consuming so much content, uh, you know, on social media and stuff like that, that kind of supported drinking and drugs and stuff like that, that I, I needed to not be told that what I was doing was okay or what I had been doing before was okay. I needed, I needed to submerge myself in other content. And so I, I kept listening to sobriety podcasts. I, I quit my old Instagram account and I started a new sober Instagram account where I only followed, you know, sober content and stuff like that. I kept pledging every day in IAS, but it probably took me about, it definitely took me a few weeks to discover the community portion of it. I didn't even know that was there when I started pledging at first. Neither did I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like that's, that's what everybody says. I don't know how they, they got to get that word out, but they need to start <laughs> advertising that part. But uh, I definitely didn't start commenting or posting until at least after the first 30 days. But I, I was in it. I definitely had really surrounded myself like with positive sobriety messaging. And I think that was really important in, in my success of being able to stick with it. And it took about 90 days until I started really kind of feeling normal. And I started wanting to kind of do more to, to take, take it to the next level to make sure it was something I could stick to. And so I started doing regular yoga classes and I started doing the IAS Zoom meetings. 
So I had seen them advertised around the community for a while, but I was definitely way too scared to log on and do a Zoom meeting. Groups really freak me out. And when I, I mean, even now when I'm in a Zoom meeting, I either don't say anything the entire time or I interrupt everyone. <laughs> like every time I open my mouth to say something, I'm interrupting someone else. And so I have, I have a hard time with the dynamic, but it's, I got a lot out of it, even though I didn't feel like I was really adding much to the conversation. I started following people on IAS and it really, it made it real, like seeing people's posts and then seeing them, you know, talking about whatever was bothering them that day and stuff like that. It gave me connection outside of myself to other people that were going through the same stuff. After about five months of not drinking, I got COVID and I started having kind of like breathing problems while I was sick with it. And I wasn't able to smoke weed. When I had to stop smoking weed, I really started to see how much anxiety I had not being able to have, you know, my drug of choice at that point in time. I was thinking about it nonstop. And all the tools that I had built up for quitting alcohol really transferred over seamlessly into quitting smoking weed. And I started to see, you know, weed wasn't doing anything for me. And it was actually taking more than it was giving. I quit smoking cold turkey while I had COVID. I think through quitting smoking weed, it really allowed me to open up more to the community. I kind of had this like wall in between me and everyone because I knew, you know, to me, everybody else was like real sober and I was California sober where I, you know, I was still doing stuff that I didn't seem like it would be acceptable to the community. But it was amazing that when I kind of came clean, if you will, and I told people, you know, that I had been smoking weed and that I stopped, everyone was so compassionate about it and so nice. There, I didn't feel like there was any judgment or anything. And it really made me feel like that much closer to everyone. Around this time, I finally finished listening to all the episodes of Home Podcast twice. <laughs> I listened to them all over and over again. And I decided I needed, you know, something new to listen to. And I posted on IAS asking for a new podcast recommendation. And overwhelmingly, I was recommended to listen to Sobertown podcast. So, you know, I do what I'm told. And I started listening to Sobertown every day. I switched over. And hearing the stories of the people in the community really made it that much more real to me. And, you know, I'd hear somebody's story and I'd go hunt them down on the app and I would follow them and... And I started seeing people on Zooms that I had, you know, heard their stories. And I remember I, I heard Molly's story and it really resonated with me because we're about the same age. And then I went to a Zoom meeting and she uh, she was hosting and I was just like, oh, my God, it's Molly. Like, this is so cool. And yeah, it just it, it was really cool. And I, I heard Drifter talking about, you know, all the things that he had kind of done wrong in his life and all the stuff that he regretted and about how giving back to the community helped to restore his soul and I thought to myself that's 
kind of what I need. You know, I feel like I've done so many things that I really regret. and I have so much guilt and shame and stuff. And so I felt like it was time to, to kind of figure out how I was going to give back to the community. So that's when I started designing uh, flyers for the Zooms. <laughs> I I liked to go to the Zooms, but I was having trouble kind of organizing when they all were. And, you know, I'd get a couple random hours free and I had to, you know, dig through screenshots on my phone to figure out when, you know, when a meeting would be and compare. Because, you know, there's Sober Squad and there's Ladies Meetings and there's Rewired Meetings. You know, I, I love them all, but <laughs> I, you know, I was having trouble kind of figuring out when, when I had something available to attend. Started by putting together an infographic with all the different meetings together in one place. There's like, you know, a daily schedule and just everything available that day with the links and stuff. And I really did it for myself in the first place, but I knew it would be valuable to other people and I was trying to give back. So I, I did my best to kind of format it in a way that it could be posted on IAS uh, without everything being too tiny to read and stuff like that. So I posted uh, the infographic and I got a really positive response from people in the community and that encouraged me to kind of start designing other graphics for the other Zooms. And I mean, nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted it, but I gave it to them anyway. And we needed people, it. <laughs> people started using them and it was really cool to, you know, I go on and I would see people reposting the graphics that I made and I started looking for more ways that I could give back. And so I started hosting Zoom meetings and I reached out to Drifter to see if I could help at all with Sober Town. And, you know, he was super cool about it. And he let me come on and start designing some of the graphics for Rewired. And he introduced me to Julie and Steve K. And I had the opportunity to design some logos for them for the podcast that they were working on. It felt really nice to give back because everybody in the community is so appreciative and thankful about it when when you are able to do something to help them. And it's really kind of the polar opposite of my day job where they are not very appreciative of the things I do sometimes. So it just it feels really nice to be able to use the skills that I have to to make things easier for people and yeah, it's just to help out in general. And so I started helping more with Sobertown and Drifters really welcomed me into the Sobertown community. I ended up becoming an admin on the Sobertown Facebook page, which was, which was cool. And it was kind of like this trippy thing where, you know, I went from being this like fangirl of the podcast to being an admin on Facebook. And I don't even know what an admin on Facebook does, to be honest with you, but I'm an admin. And, and you found Silvertown as well. Yeah, yeah. I started helping with the website and making some kind of, you know, minor changes to the website here and there. And I started, you know, building new pages. And I, you know, just through what I'm able to do, I've ended up kind of falling into some various tech support with issues, you know, related to Zoom meetings, stuff like that. And I ended up putting together some how-to sheets with instructions for the ladies' Zooms and the Sobertown and Rewired Zooms. And yeah, it's, it's been really cool that everyone's been, you know, so welcoming. And through it, I've really, I really feel like I've built up a community of people. You know, there's people like you, Viv, that 
if I go silent for a few days, you'll go hunt me down on multiple <laughs> platforms and <laughs> make sure that, that, you know, everything's okay, which is, it's awesome. It's like, it's totally, you know, the energy that I need in my life because I sometimes, you know, I, I start putting so much in that the vulnerability starts to get to me and then I pull back and I kind of feel like I'm being annoying. <laughs> and, and then Never. people like you and, you know, there have been some other people too that have, you know, reached out to me whenever I'm not responding or commenting or posting. And it's cool to feel, you know, like, like I'm part of something and, Who's you know, I've made, family? I've made some, yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like a family. I, you know, Polly let me into the telegram groups, the ladies telegram groups. And so, you know, I have, Posts, you know, I'm listening to the readings and I, you know, I'm responding to people on there and it, it's nice to be able to feel like I can be supportive in more ways and to feel like I can be supported. You know, there's definitely been times where I feel like I'm kind of up against a wall and I posted and people have reached out to support me, which is, it's really great. I don't really have a big community here where I'm living. I moved to Florida, you know, right before COVID and between all this other <laughs> nonsense that I've been talking about this whole time. It's been hard to, to actually make real life friends during this amount of time. But, you know, the, the community here has really been everything to me. The other thing that has really flourished in my sobriety has been my relationship with my daughter. Yes. She she definitely still has her moments. Um and she she's got years of negative habits that she's gotta unlearn the things that she she's gotten from me. But she has grown leaps and bounds in the last year. And you know, I have as well. We don't we don't scream at each other. I'm not mean to her. And she has a problem sort of getting frustrated with her. I rub her back and I try to validate her feelings. I definitely, I still lose my temper sometimes, but I don't let myself go over the edge of going too far or saying things that I regret that I get, you know, ashamed of myself from it. Through you and Rewired, I've learned about boundaries and I set clear boundaries now and she hates it in a lot of ways, but it's really made a big difference that... You know, she knows what to expect from me. And if I say no to something, no means no. And, and yeah, it's it's just, it's huge. And she, there were things when I was drinking, like she, she was having problems with eczema and she was having stomach issues and she was on medication for these things. But since I've gotten sober, a lot of these issues have just completely cleared up on their own. And I don't, I can't even pinpoint what what has cured her eczema, but it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm cooking healthier food. I'm here and I'm present and I'm, I'm doing the laundry and stuff that I wasn't doing before. And, you know, I didn't have to make a conscious effort to fix some of that stuff, but they just have naturally gone away in the last year as kind of a part of me taking better care of myself and better care of my family. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little over a year sober now and I thought in some ways that I would kind of be in a different place in my life at a year sobriety. You know, I look at some people on the app that seem like they're doing such big things after a year. You know, I think Drifter started the podcast at like six months <laughs> sober or something like that. You know, I kind of thought I was going to figure out who I was and, you know, what I want to be when I grow up and stuff like that. And I haven't necessarily gotten there, but I've, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm freaking sober. <laughs> my relationship sober. with my daughter has, it's just, I mean, it's, that is so much more important than any of the other stuff, you know, and I'm trying to give my grace, myself grace to take the time I need to kind of come around to who I am and what I want to do with my life. I've had to learn the small stuff before I can get to the big stuff, like brushing my teeth every day and making my bed every day and taking my makeup off at night and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I'm not going to take over the world until I figure out how to take baby steps. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. I feel like I've come so far and I'm, you know, I'm really excited to kind of see what happens next because I have made so much progress in the last year. And we have... Now we have newfound time. We have newfound time where the drink take up that time. Now we have newfound time to spend time of care. And one of the listening story is that there wasn't one one specific way to get sober. It was your trial and error of different ways to get sober. And also the other thing that I I want to interject. This is it is gifts of sobriety that your heart is so big and I will always 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 hold you to my heart because this is what sobriety does. So in addiction that we we close off, like you said, you know, we hide. And then in sobriety, what you've done for me when I was going through my depression, you reached out to me. So it's not only it's not only one way, it's an it's a community. It's a family. You know, the motto is connection, it's addiction. And when you reached out to me, then you put a post up on IAS saying about it was the end. And to me, I was so deeply touched because I felt this beautiful woman, young lady that has come into my life to give me comfort. So your heart has grown so big, not only with your daughter to give her the platform of these are boundaries but also to show her what sobriety does that it gives us awareness to have a big heart for others huge and just stepped into it and stepped into the so much structure and like drifter says you know building a sober army and this is what we are to building a sober army and I wanted to take the opportunity's podcast to to show how how vulnerable we become in sobriety because that takes and also how much love we have to give sobriety and also we just celebrated your one year anniversary as we mentioned so yeah i elaborate on that how was that how was your one year soberversary is what we call it right <laughs> It was awesome. It was so cool. I mean, I, I tried to make the day special for myself. I, I went and got a massage and I had a little pizza party with myself and my daughter because uh, my husband had to work. But uh, but then, you know, I you insisted that I come to the meeting that night, the Zoom meeting, and you basically like threw a party for me, which was so cool. Like You just you, rallied around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm too shy to kind of advocate for myself sometimes, but you, you know, went out and basically told everyone of their moms to come to Zoom, to come celebrate with me. And, you know, everyone had their party hats on and it was so great. I spent the whole time with this like huge smile on my face until my face hurt. And then I'm like practically crying the entire time too, because 
you know, so many people had such sweet stuff to say and it was, it was really cool to see, you know, so many people that I, you know, I care about and respect in the community, but also people, some people that I didn't even really know that had nice things to say about, you know, having seen the graphics that I made around the community and encouraging them to go to Zooms and stuff like that. And it just, it really touched my heart. It was, yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was <laughs> unforgettable, I think. You know, it, it made me feel very special and it was yeah, a great I, way to celebrate. Yeah, yeah, because it is a celebration. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is a celebration. So in conclusion to the, to the podcast, I always like, I would like to close it out with a mess and a question for anybody that's out there. And I want to ask you this question. Mary, what would you say to someone that's struggling with alcohol and that listens to your story but feels it's impossible for them to overcome? Oh, that's a good question, babe. <laughs> you know, I think we've definitely we've all been there for sure. Everyone in the community has been to that point where they they feel like it's impossible. But I think it's really important to remember that nothing is impossible. I think all of us got to that point of feeling like it's impossible to quit, but years and years before that, you would have thought it was impossible to get into that situation in the first place. So that just proves to you nothing is impossible. But you know, what really worked for me was, first off, I had to come to terms with the fact that alcohol was not doing anything for me and that I was not fucked up for having a problem with it. I think you you have to believe that it's not benefiting your life. It has, you know, if it's if it's something that you feel like you're you're giving up, it's going to be hard. It's going to be an uphill battle. But if it feels like it's something you're getting rid of, then I think it makes it a lot easier. You know, that it's it's a problem in your life that is going away instead of something that you love that you believe. And then I think it's it's really from there. It's a matter of having a strong sobriety toolbox meditating has been huge for me quit with stuff like that in the beginning the mindset that I was practicing sobriety rather than failing at the goal was really really important because you know you can't just you can't just jump into this without preparing for it and all that time that I was you know quote-unquote practicing it it allowed me to build up the tools kind of at my own pace without having this like feeling that it was forever and that that set me up for success I think Joe Dispenza talks about living in the mindset you, they, you have to live in the mindset of having already achieved what you want and I think immersing myself in sobriety culture even before I quit drinking really really helped with that it kind of put me in the mindset that I had already quit even though alcohol was still part of my life. And I think last I would say, you know, it's just, it's really important to establish new habits and routines, um, whether it's journaling, exercising, sometimes it's just replacing the alcohol with something that's non-alcoholic to drink, but you, you need to be able to, to establish new, new things in your life that are going to set you up for success. And of course, if you're not on IAS, go download IAS because the community there, you know, it, it absolutely has changed my life. You know, being able to talk about the things that you're ashamed of and not being judged for it is 
it makes all the difference. Absolutely. I think that everything that you said is perfect. Thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate you, your time, your sobriety story, your life story. Thank you, Viv. I really I appreciate all the time that you've taken to, to hear my story.